Good morning. Can you hear me? Am I on? Hello there. Hey, let there be sound. Okay. If you have your Bible with you, <clears throat> please turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to be looking in verses 14 through 29. The center of our ethics is not religious virtue. The center of our ethics is not religious virtue. The center of our ethics is the holiness of God. Christian ministry is not about anything else before it's about the mediation of Jesus Christ to sinners through the proclamation of Jesus Christ to sinners. And because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is perfectly holy, everyday mediation of Christ through proclamation of Christ matters because to become more Christ-like is to become more holy. The call to Christian ministry is a call to holiness. Here's how the author of Hebrews issues that call. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 14. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. And make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal. For you know that later when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected even though he sought it with tears because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance. For you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not reject the one who speaks. For if they did not escape when they rejected him who warned them on earth, even less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. His voice shook the earth at that time, but now he has promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This expression, yet once more, indicates the removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what is not shaken might remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We ask that you would bless the teaching of it this morning. Help us to tremble at your greatness and to marvel at your grace. And it's in your son's name we pray these things. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen. In his classic book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer says that what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What we think about when we think about God will be the difference between despair and hope, 
between sadness and joy, and crucially, between damnation and salvation. To get God wrong is to get reality wrong. And to get God wrong is to violate his holiness. To make an untrue statement about God is to, in some way, offend his holiness, to obscure it, because he is, above all, holy. Which introduces the first of three things I want to share with you this morning from this passage about holiness. The first thing we see about holiness is this. Holiness is paramount. Holiness is paramount. The highest aspiration in all of the human experience is, in fact, holiness. It is the paramount virtue. It's better than happiness. Holiness is the paramount virtue because it shapes all of the other virtues, because it is the essential attribute of God that sets him apart from everybody else. Holiness is the paramount virtue because above all creatures and above all gods, the one true God is holy, holy, holy. The holiness of God is not a casual thing. Our holy God deserves reverence and worship. Leviticus 22, verse 32. You must not profane my holy name. I must be treated as holy among the Israelites. I am the Lord who sets you apart. For whatever we may treasure in our lives, whatever we may revere, what ought to be paramount in our hearts and in our minds is the holiness of God. Because to fall into the hands of the living God is a fearful thing. Verse 18, for you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, the blast of a trumpet, the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to them. They couldn't bear what was commanded. If even an animal were to touch the mountain, it must be destroyed. The appearance is so terrifying that Moses says, I am trembling with fear. The author of Hebrews is here referencing the events of Exodus 19 and, of course, other related events where we see just how sacred the things of God are at Mount Sinai. And by contrast, how in the glory reflected of Mount Sinai and the holiness presented there, by contrast, how profane it makes the Israelites look. The impact of the profane entering the sphere of the holy is terrifying. The German theologian Rudolf Otto approached the religious conception of holiness in his landmark 1923 book, The Idea of the Holy, in which he pondered the sense of what he called the numinous. The numinous is the overwhelming and ineffable, the, the indescribable experience of the spiritually other. He explores the emotional and spiritual discombobulation that occurs in a re religious experience when someone encounters the numinous. He called this experience the mysterium tremendum, the all-encompassing submersion of the self into the holy other, resulting in anything he listed from cold chills to fearful trembling to heart-pounding thrills or ecstatic spasms. We come into contact with the holy, for Rudolf Otto, a mostly undefined religious experience common in most spiritual traditions, and we are overcome, we are undone, we are undeniably touched in a supernaturally powerful way that rearranges our protons 
in our very sense of self and reality. Now, the Christian tradition defines this, personifies it. The Christian tradition gives us the numinous experience as the reality of a perfectly holy God coming near to sinners. They hear him walking in the cool of the evening and they must hide shaking in the bushes. They see the train of his glory in the temple and they are undone and feel immediately unclean. They carelessly touch his sacred ark and they die instantly. His holiness cannot be touched with unclean hands. His holiness is fire and darkness at the same time. It is a loud trumpet blast, and yet it is also unbearable words. It is an unbearable glory, an untouchable glory. The holiness of God is so terrifying that to approach it is to tremble in fear. Holiness stands in stark contrast to the normal course of human affairs. Holiness is not business as usual. To stare at God's holiness is to see in the blazing light of the bright and morning star the shameful darkness that we engage in so flippantly and eagerly on a daily basis. The crass consumerism of our surrounding culture, the demonization and injustice and dishonesty in our politics, the objectification and dehumanization of our anger, of our sexual immorality, if not indeed, even in thought. We fool ourselves into thinking that this is not an affront to God, even somehow that our, that our anger is uh, in service to God who forbids it, but it is all a defiling of the image of God in other human beings. To defile his image is in fact to denigrate his holiness. God's holiness is meant to make us a different kind of people. Not simply more religious, but more like Christ. The peaceability of Christian leaders sets them apart. It's why the Lord's servants are not to be quarrelsome or short-tempered. It's why we're commanded to gentleness and forbidden from being domineering. The holiness of God makes the normal course of even our big ministry efforts look so small. Even as we seek to magnify him, we find that even our best sermons and our best music and our best service can only scratch the surface of a reflection of his glory. In the shadow of his paramount holiness, even our best Sunday preaching is like playing with Legos in front of the Taj Mahal. We build our sandcastle so intricately, we're so focused, we're carving it out so smooth and so careful, and we've got all the nice rivets and turrets, and it just looks so wonderful. And then we look up, and there's the Rocky Mountains. That's the holiness of God towering over the kingdoms of our ministries. And we realize when we look up that we want to make our lives about preaching the Rocky Mountains and not our sandcastles. Puny preaching and puny teaching makes puny Christians. Our great, glorious, and holy God deserves big, glorious, holy preaching. Because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the job of Christian ministry, of Christian discipleship, is a restoration of this sense of glory in the hearts and minds of those set on Christ, who is himself, the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 1, the radiance of the glory of God. We're not selling Amway. We're proclaiming the, the Jesus 
who reigns and rules and upholds the universe by the word of his power. This isn't the Jesus you get down out of the attic at Christmas time. This is the real, risen, living Christ. We preach a big God. Holiness is paramount. Therefore, secondly, holiness is pursued. Holiness is pursued. One of the most instructive things about the biblical qualifications for the pastorate found in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus chapter 1 is how there are virtually no skills or gifts mentioned in that list. Apart from able to teach, the list focuses mostly on character and disposition, on the quality of the heart and of the quality of the behavior. What are these qualification passages? They're portraits of holiness. So the call to ministry is a call to attaining or maintaining holiness. A set-apartness that qualifies one to lead the church. The call to ministry is an invitation to pursue holiness. Look again at how our passage begins. Verse 14, pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. John Calvin comments, with no other eyes shall we see God than those which have been renewed after his image. Now, holiness isn't sinlessness, for us at least, at this side of heaven. It is set-apartness. It's a taking seriously of God's holiness, enough to think differently, act differently, speak differently, to be different from the world. And this is not something that happens on autopilot. Notice the repeated emphasis of the repeated directive in verses 15 and 16. Make sure that no one falls short. Verse 16, make sure there isn't any immoral or irreverent person. This is very verby language. These imperatives are emphatic. It's a reminder that holiness is something to be actively pursued. D.A. Carson writes, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience, and we call it freedom. We drift toward superstition, and we call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control, and we call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and we delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godliness, uh, godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. I want to remind those of you who still share some affinity with the gospel-centered movement, whatever state it may be in today, that gospel-centrism isn't gospel-onlyanism. The imperatives of Scripture do not uh, appear there to be waved away with some sort of vague notion of grace as a kind of feel-good vibe. Holiness is something to stand in awe of, yes, but it's also something for every Christian to pursue. Don't let bitterness take root, verse 15. Tom Schreiner points out this is likely a metaphorical reference to not allowing a bad root that produces bad Fruit, as in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 18, which says, Be sure there is no man, woman, clan, or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Be sure there is no root among you bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. And this reference in verse 16 of our focus passage to Esau, 
who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal is a warning about setting appetite above uh, um, you know, our appetite for God's will, appetites for anything else, fleshly appetites above our appetite for the Lord. Esau profaned himself when his grumbling stomach got the best of him. He traded in his birthright for a bowl of gruel. And we do the same thing every day when we engage in sins of the mind and sins of the flesh. In those moments, we are worshiping the God of our bellies, following our fleshly appetites rather than God. We must see holiness as an actionable value, a pursuit. Earlier in this chapter, before our focus text this morning, the author says things like, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let's run with endurance. And he says, in struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood and strengthen your tired hands and knees and make straight paths for your feet. The call to Christian service is a call to run after holiness. To keep running, never to coast. As in 1 Timothy 6.11, where Paul urges his young protege to flee sin, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. The author of Hebrews doesn't say holiness is assumed. He says holiness is pursued. And yet, and yet, even if we do that, We often find ourselves struggling, don't we? We find ourselves sort of caught in a Romans 7 predicament. The good I know to do, I find I struggle to do. The bad things I know not to do, I find myself doing over and over and over again. And in fact, I've discovered, I hope that you've discovered this as well. One of the great ironies of following Jesus, of Christian disciples, is that the more Christ-like I become the more aware I am of not being like Christ. (laughs) I've been following Jesus now for 30-something years, and I thought I'd be a lot more sanctified by now. (laughs) The closer I get to God, the more of my unholiness I see. In our pursuit of holiness, we find that we can't quite reach it. The law that tells us what to do simultaneously reveals we cannot perfectly do it. The law that calls us to life also crushes us. Can you touch Mount Sinai? Standing over us, awesome and fearful, is the command of consecration in Leviticus 11.45, later quoted by the Apostle Peter. Be holy as I am holy. Now this cannot mean that we are to be holy like God is holy. No one can be holy like God is holy. It means that we are to be holy because God is holy. And yet in the light of God's holiness, our pursuit of holiness will always reveal itself as falling short. Our righteousness is filthy rags. The cry of Paul at the end of Romans 7. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Well, the author of Hebrews does not leave his readers ashamed in condemnation. In fact, the whole point of his letter is to steer his audience away from the cult of ritualistic righteousness and toward the holy grace of God in Christ Jesus. In this way, the words, be holy as I am holy, are not just a command. They are a command, but they're not just a command. They're also a promise. In fact, holiness is pursued because, thirdly and finally, holiness is promised. 
holiness is promised. What the author is doing here is very similar to the dynamic Paul explores in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul contrasts law and gospel. And he affirms the goodness of the law. The law is glorious. The law is good. It reveals the holiness of God. It cannot be bad. And yet, Paul says, the glory of the gospel surpasses the glory of the law. In the book of Hebrews, the word better appears 11 times. Better things, better hope, better covenant, better promises, better sacrifices, better possession, better place, better resurrection. The law is good, but the gospel is better. Why? Because the law gives us work, the gospel gives us the work of Christ. I love the buildup in our passage. The author has already set up how terrible the holiness of God is compared to the sinful state of ourselves. How under the law we cannot be anything other than utterly condemned. To see ourselves in the light of God's paramount holiness. Verse 21, the appearance is so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But he says, verse 22, instead, you have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. Myriads of angels, festive gatherings, the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a better covenant, a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel cries out for justice. The blood of Christ declares that justice is accomplished. The blood of Abel testifies to the faithfulness of his sacrifices, but those sacrifices have to keep going. The blood of Jesus testifies to the end of all sacrifices. Hebrews 7, 27. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins and then for those of the people. He did this once for all when he offered himself. The sprinkled blood is the payment that cancels the debt against you. And forgiveness is just the beginning. Forgiveness is just the beginning. When I um, preached recently, I had a fellow come up to me afterwards. He said, Pastor, I really enjoyed that sermon, but um, I really wish you would have let us have it. And I thought, oh no. I'm preaching Zion, he wants Sinai. Our flesh yearns for Sinai. Brothers who preach, the word of God will have us stepping on toes constantly. But preaching isn't supposed to be all about stepping on toes. Much less letting people have it. I don't know if he wanted to get punched in the face or, or what. But that's not what preaching's about. Preaching is about lifting up tired hands. And raising up downcast souls. In a world, and, and even in an evangelical landscape that's overrun with bad news, let's not forget that we are good news people. As your people file in each week, overcome with Sinai, give them Zion. Imagine you're 12 years old, and every day at school there is the bully who just will not let you alone. Some of you don't have to imagine, you, you, you live this experience. 
You try to hide from the bully, he always finds you. You try to stand up to the bully, he always defeats you. Every single day, the bully is there. And so you decide to take some matters into your own hands. You think, I need to toughen up. And so you start to exercise more and you begin to lift weights and you take a little you know, boxing lessons. Maybe you look up on YouTube, right, some MMA stuff or some holds or whatever. But it doesn't matter. As hard as you work, as tough as you can get, he's always tougher. And he's always bigger. And he's meaner than you. There's no escape. There's nothing you can do to outwin the bully. So what do you do? Well, you got a big brother. And you bring your big brother. Sinai is no match for Zion. The ugly truth is we need the terrors of the law and its condemnation to better appreciate the freedom and joy of the gospel. The good news will only be as good as the bad news is bad. So if the bad news isn't really all that bad, the good news isn't going to be all that good. So we need the terror of the law to help us rejoice in the gospel. Jesus saves the ungodly. He died not for lawkeepers, but for lawbreakers. Not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous and the self-righteous. And the route to heaven, biblically speaking, is not some perfectly upward trajectory of law-keeping, but a journey into admitting that we are lawbreakers who are utterly and totally dependent on God's grace. Two men walk into the temple. One says, I thank you, God, I'm not like him. That I'm holy and he's not. The other man says, have mercy on me, God, for I am unclean. Which man walks home justified? So what is our response to the promise of holiness? I'll finish quickly. Verses 25 through 27. That we do not reject the one who speaks this word to us. Both the terror of the law and the goodness of the gospel. And that we trust in the consummation of this promise. Yet once more indicates the removal of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what is not shaken might remain. Our God, the consuming fire, will burn up all the wickedness and brokenness in the world. Even death and the grave will be thrown into the fires of his wrath and eternally consumed. But when the fire comes, you and I, like the free, uh, 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 three friends of Daniel, will stand amidst the fire unharmed. For one like the Son of Man will be standing with us. And he will not be burned by the blazing fires of his holiness then because that same holy fire has consumed the record of death that stands against us. Brothers and sisters, there's no such thing as being a little justified. So when he comes to shake the earth again and we stand before the Sinai of his glory at the end of all things, we will stand firm. You may be tired, you may be old, you may be beaten down. You may be more, more aware of your own holiness than you've ever been, which makes sense in the trajectory of sanctification. And yet at that moment, you will be more holy than you've ever been because he will clothe you fully and finally in his righteousness. Therefore, to conclude, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it, we may serve acceptably with reverence and awe. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We ask that you would help us to cherish it as we ought to. And we thank you for the goodness of your gospel. Help us to be good news people in a bad news world. 
We thank you for your son, Christ Jesus. And we pray all these things in his name, the name above all names. Amen.